Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week, WFIU's Will Murphy speaks with political scientist and anthropologist James C. Scott. Scott came to the WFIU studios in March while visiting Indiana University as part of the Patton Lecture Series. Professor Scott, thank you for joining us here on Profiles on WFIU. My pleasure. Now, let's uh, start first of all. We'll get to definitions about the, uh, the topics that you research and present on, uh, the state, anarchy, that sort of thing. But before we do, I'm always intrigued by what leads researchers to the fields they choose. So if you're studying uh, state hegemony, if you're evaluating people's attempts to flee hegemony, if you're talking about anarchy, what was it that led you to that field of research? Well, this the actual concern with anarchy and people fleeing the state is a rather late development in a long career. So I think that uh, in terms of me being a Southeast Asianist, I was trained as a Southeast Asianist. I went to Burma for a year before I began graduate school and so was kind of dedicated to learning a lot about Southeast Asia. And my first job was at Wisconsin in 1967. I began teaching. And as you could imagine, this was the Vietnam War and demonstrations. Uh, so and being a Southeast Asianist, I spent a lot of time speaking against the war. Uh, I have a Quaker background and therefore would be have been a conscientious objector uh, myself. And I decided at some point um, in the course of my time at Wisconsin in the late 60s, early 70s, that peasants were the most uh, numerous class in world history and that if development meant anything, it ought to mean something for them. Uh, and if it didn't, the hell with development. And I then... I decided more or less to devote my career to the study of peasants uh, that seemed to me like a worthy and um, kind of deserving topic that was worthy of my efforts. And that led me then to a kind of history of different kinds of peasantry, their relationship to the state, and eventually to anarchism. It makes absolute sense, given the political climate of the times, that you're looking at... at uh, these questions, but but what drew you to to Burma? What was it that was interesting there? That even in your in your graduate studies, you decided to go there. To tell you the truth of this story is, I suppose, it's worthwhile because it's encouraging for graduate students who don't know what they're going to do, because it was completely at random. I was an undergraduate at Williams. I was an economics honor student, and I was assigned by a professor whom I adored. Um, the topic of German wartime mobilization because it turned out that the Germans didn't have double or triple shifts even early in the war when they had the manpower for it and I was supposed to understand this. Anyway, I had been badly prepared for Williams. I felt uh, that everyone was smarter than I was and I worked like a crazy man for the first three years and at the end of the third year I realized I was doing well and I relaxed. I relaxed to the point of uh, not doing much work and falling in love in this first semester of my senior year. And my professor called me in and said, asked me what I'd done on my uh, thesis topic, uh, honors thesis topic. And I tried to fake it. Uh, and he saw through me and said, get out. You're not my student anymore. You haven't done enough work. 
And I realized if I was going to graduate with uh, honors uh, in economics, I had to find someone to adopt me. So I knocked on the doors of the different professors. And I think the third or fourth one um, had worked on Indonesia. And he said, well, if I've always wanted to learn more about the economic development of Burma. If you'll do that, I'll adopt you. And I thought, yes, fine, that's good. And I closed the door behind me and said to myself, where's Burma? Uh, and uh, it turned out I was headed to Harvard Law School because I couldn't make up my mind about what to do. And I applied more or less as a lark for a rotary fellowship to Burma and got it and decided, well, I can always go to law school, but when am I going to get a chance to go to Burma? So I spent a year there. And uh, after that, I didn't want to go to law school. I didn't want to be an economist. I wanted to kind of understand cultures and politics of Burma. What was it that uh, persuaded you during that year overseas? Oh, well, you have to sort of put yourself in the shoes of a, a young man who had never been abroad, who had a, a kind of cloistered background. And for me, everything was, remember, this is 1959. Everything is new. I don't think my eyes ever blinked because I was so wide-eyed about everything that I was seeing and understanding. And uh, I think that kind of experience with a culture that is uh, very much different than one's own is it shakes one's assumptions. Uh, it makes you want to understand why these people believe the things they do, behave in the ways they do. And so I just found it an endless interesting puzzle to figure out the the lived experience of the people I was among for that year. And of course, that was also the year in which the military took over, more or less, uh, for the first time. And so I became interested also in the politics of Burma. When you went over there, was Aung San Suu Kyi's father the uh, defector? No, he had been assassinated. And uh, Ne Win was the prime minister under the democratic period, and the I think in 1960 there was the uh, Ne Win military caretaker government. It was called. It lasted for a year and a half, and then there were new elections. Unu won them, and then the military decided it didn't want Unu to run the country anyway, so it simply took over. And so from 1962 until essentially today, uh, the military has run the country. Given that political climate, how has that impacted your ability? How has that affected your ability to do your research in that area? I didn't do a dissertation on Burma because it was impossible to go there. So I gave up on Burma. I would have done China, but it was impossible to go there. So I ended up studying Indonesian because from the great advantage of Indonesian is that it's spoken in four countries in Southeast Asia. It's spoken, it's the national language of Malaysia and of Indonesia, and it's also spoken in parts of the Philippines uh, and Thailand. So I thought one of these countries is going to let me go in. Uh, and so I ended up doing a dissertation in Malaysia and later on uh, spending two years in a Malay rice farming village. And so I abandoned Burma, or you could say Burma abandoned me, until... I suppose, 2009, when I first decided I wanted to go back uh, to Burma and work on the language and the culture. I just finished another project. And uh, then 
there were a lot of political restrictions. There were places I couldn't go, things that I didn't want to talk about, uh, that people didn't want me to talk about. There were people I would have loved to have met, have, have met, and these people were, I could have met them, but it would have endangered them, uh, and I would have been watched after I met them. And so I decided not to do any of those things just because I didn't want to put them in trouble and also I didn't want to put myself in trouble. So it's only been in the last year or two that you have uh, a kind of open political culture with the press uh, able to publish more or less what it uh, wants to do. It makes it a much more – everything that was sub rosa under the table and under the radar is now pretty much in public view. I hope before this hour is out that we can – come back to that that uh, time after 2009 when you rekindle that relationship, as it were. But let's talk about that the two years in the fishing village. I would think that you would stand out like a sore thumb in that sort of community. Perhaps you can uh, explain to us what that life was like and what the nature of your research was while you were there. So I, I misspoke. It's, it was a rice farming village rather than a fishing village. Fishing villages are a lot more complicated. You can think of a, a rice village as having, uh, if you like, two catches a year if they have two crops, whereas a uh, fishing village every day is a kind of new uh, roll of the dice in terms of the fish that they catch and so on. So I, I worked in the rice bowl area of Malaysia. It was, um, uh, was a village entirely devoted to rice farming in the north uh, northern part of the country. And yes, I was the first... I was the first Westerner anyone had ever seen close up. The uh, they're, they're completely uh, welcoming. It was I I loved the geographical setting because there was a big mountain nearby I could look up to, even though it was extremely hot. And it was a uh, I don't know anyone who's done ethnographic research will understand this. Although I was not trained as an ethnographer, but as an ethnographer or anthropologist. You are at work from the moment you open your eyes in the morning till you close them at night, and there is no place to hide. I mean, people are in your private space going through your drawers to see what you brought back from town last week. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it is, it's an intense and tiring experience, but it, it's one of constant discovery and surprise and amazement. And I think these people, um, they understood why I was there. Uh, they didn't understand research, but they understood I was a teacher who wanted to understand how I wanted to write something about the life that they led and their rice farming uh, practices and their class relationships. And they uh, they regarded me and my whole family was there. I had three children and a wife. And uh, so we were an object of great uh, curiosity. And what was the uh, while you're there? What's the tenor of your research? What are you What are you looking at? So I was interested in class relations. Uh, this was a an area in which the major change was the mechanization of the rice harvest, and so you have to think of the sort of great threshing machines for wheat uh, being deployed in rice paddies and uh, mechanically harvesting. This meant that it took away a tremendous number of jobs of the people who would uh, cut the rice, bundle it, and thresh it. It did it all in one operation in a big machine. Machines were owned by Chinese, and the landowners would often uh, – land that they had 
rent it out to tenants. They would then take back and farm themselves because they didn't need the harvest labor and could just pay the machine operator to uh, harvest their rice. And so it resulted in a whole series of class tensions. And I wrote uh, nothing was – there were no public demonstrations or riots or anything like that. But there was a, a kind of underground war of character assassination, sabotage of the machines, uh, thefts, uh, some fires, and so on. That I wrote about this in a book called Weapons of the Week. And the argument is that in authoritarian situations where public protest is dangerous uh, or perhaps even fatal, that uh, there is nonetheless a kind of politics that goes on. And these things most political scientists don't recognize as politics, but it's the politics of ordinary weak people historically in almost every setting. And uh, we make a big mistake if we imagine that we can do historical research by just looking for public social movements, which are a product of modern open democratic politics. I'll remind our listeners who are just joining us, we're listening to Profiles, and our guest this evening is Professor James Scott, who is on the Bloomington campus as part of the Patton Lecture Series. Let's uh, turn to the the themes of your research, at least the ones you'll be talking about uh, while you're in Bloomington. You talk a great deal uh, in your presentations about state hegemony, about efforts to evade that hegemony, about anarchy. Can we start with some definitions first of all? How do you define the state when you're making those sorts of evaluations? Well, in my current work, which is an effort to understand the very earliest states in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, my working definition, because it's very hard to figure out when towns, right? There are towns long before there are states, it's clear, of, of towns of 5,000, 6,000 people, they're kind of merchants. There's some inequality, but and they may be councils that run uh, the affairs of these small towns, uh, but they're not states. And so my the again, these are these are before written records, uh, even in cuneiform exist. And so my working definition of a state is a walled town. So it seems to me that when a town is walled. It says to you that it has something to protect behind the wall, either gold or grain or people that it wants to protect and hold on to, and that it's uh, and that you then have other states or other outside groups that are likely to attack this town. So I, it's a, it's not a perfect definition, but given the archaeological facts, it seems to me the best material indication that you have something like a state. Okay, I was trying to understand this. Uh as I was listening to your presentation, because, and I may be reading between the lines here, but I almost got the impression that you think of the state as a partially criminal enterprise in that uh, you talk, for example, about sedentary agriculture mm. and how the crops that we've come to depend on are attractive primarily because they can be taxed or even stolen uh, by the state. Um, is that a, a misreading of your perspective? Uh, no. The beginning, I mean, let's not let's distinguish between kind of modern democratic states with citizenship rights and so on from the early state. And so the early state, it's not too far off the mark for you to call it a criminal enterprise. I think a better description of it is as a protection racket, right? Uh, that is to say a protection racket is uh, – let me give you an example. 
let's imagine you have a band of people who raid valley settlements or raid little straits or estuaries where the commercial traffic is passing and plunder the ships. Uh, The problem with that as a criminal enterprise is that if they're successful, if they take everything, uh, either of two things happen. Either the trade routes move away or the trade just disappears altogether and so they're out of business. So what almost always happens in such cases is that these people become toll collectors, all right? That they, in exchange for a portion of the cargo, in exchange for a portion of whatever the caravan is carrying, they protect the caravan against other predators, right? And now you're very close to a state, uh, in that respect, that it is, uh, it, it involves a protection against third-party predators. It involves the collection of taxes or tolls, if you like. And I think that the early state is very much like a protection racket. That's helpful. I, in your uh, conver- in your discussions, uh, you you talk about the efforts of the hill people in the areas that you survey. Uh, to evade the lowland people. And we're speaking generically here. You also reference a uh, higher elevations uh, uh, in the Andes, for example, where the, the mid-range is sort of where the state lies and right. there are uh, uh, refugees, if you will, on either side of that border. Uh, but you have these folks evading um, governance and taxation and expropriation by the state. But I found myself wondering how this group of people in a in a hill community is different from a state. They're they share a language there, they have shared values, they have a I presume a geography that they uh recognize as their own. Now how how is that different than a state? It's actually very different from a state. So let me go back a little bit. My effort in this to understand There's a huge population in upland Southeast Asia, uh, above 200 meters. And uh, we're talking about 100 100 million people, roughly, from Vietnam all the way over to northeastern India, parts of southwest China, all of Laos, northern Burma, Thailand, and so on. This is the Zomia? This is the Zomia, an area that that a geographer friend of mine calls Zomia. I, I, I should point out in passing that there's an anarchist commune in Hamburg, Germany, that calls itself Zomia, and has existed for the last three or four years. So I think I'm the only political scientist with a uh, anarchist commune uh, named after uh, the coinage of terms. In any case, normally the people in the valleys, all throughout Southeast Asia, or the Han in China, think of hill peoples as an essentially different people, as a people who never figured out how to plant rice, who never adopted Buddhism, who never were able to create large towns, uh, a.k.a. civilizations. And I think I'm able to show completely convincingly that people have been moving back and forth between the hills and valleys for a long, long time, all right? These are permeable sort of membranes between these areas. And that if you look at the hill peoples on a long view that over the past 2,000 years, these are people who are not originally in the hills. These are people who lived in the valleys and who fled states either because of conscription or taxes or famines or war and so on, uh, and that they are, in a sense, refugees. And this brings me to the question of 
The hills then are something uh, described by a great historian of uh, early colonial America. These areas represent shatter zones, he calls them. That is to say, uh, over 2,000 years, people have been fleeing from different state-making projects and moving to the hills in little groups, large groups, and so on. And like a com- bumper cars at a carnival, they bump into one another, reposition one another, uh, and become actually ethnic groups in the hills. And the that's why these hills are extremely difficult to understand as linguistic and cultural phenomenon because uh, there are so many fragments of so many cultures, so many co- hybrid uh, combinations and so on. And this, uh, this is repeated in, a, in, in lots of places. And I, I should add that although in Southeast Asia, this maps on hill and valley, in other places, it maps in, on a different kind of geography. Um, but we have, the world is filled with people who are runaways who become a people at the frontier or at the periphery. So a good example is the Cossacks. The Cossacks are now considered a kind of important ethnic group in Russia, of the, uh, probably the most solidaristic ethnic group. And yet what they are historically is just serfs who ran away from European serfdom. And if they went to the Don Basin, they became the Don Cossacks. If they went to Azov Sea, they became the Azov Cossack Horde. And so it was... Um, uh, they were only, their origin was flight, and they were not a group when they fled and became a group at the, uh, at the frontier. And I think this is extremely common. It's true, I don't know if you're familiar with the term maroon community in the Caribbean and the West. These are the co- communities of slaves who ran away uh, in the cockpits, so-called cockpit of Jamaica, in parts of Brazil and Belize and so on. And uh, they were runaway slaves from all over Africa who became, in a sense, a tribal group, an ethnic group uh, over time. Suriname is the uh, most striking example of this. That's just a collection of people who managed to run away from, uh, from slavery. So I am dealing with, I think, the last great, space that has not been totally incorporated by the state into its projects. I think of this as the world's last enclosure movement uh, by the modern state. Its days are numbered. But I think the phenomenon that I point to is something that one can find in lots of other places as well. I'm really intrigued by this this phenomenon and these descriptions. Uh, And I can't help but think of the situation we face right now in the Middle East where people are fleeing in it's insufficient to say droves, but phenomenal numbers, um, most of them to Europe, some of them to the right. states. Uh, and our our own state, Indiana, is uh, fighting to keep them out. And at the same time, as you probably know with your interest in Burma, we have a phenomenal Burmese population in Fort Wayne. Now, are these people, these sorts of archipelagos that you describe, are they stateless? Are they, are they reassimilated in a different state? Are they... It's an interesting. It's an interesting question. I think perhaps one way of understanding what you point to is the internationalization of flight, right? That is to say, these are people who would have had to walk on foot somewhere, and they would end up. I mean, I think if, if the Kurds are a perfectly good example of a hill people, even. Bashir al-Assad is an Alawite, and the Alawites were a sort of mountain people that were recruited preferentially into the army under the British. 
and became a kind of ruling class, but they were a kind of minority and uh, at, in the hills who had run away to the hills uh, because of persecution originally. And so it seems to me that the Karen and Burmese that one finds, uh, there are a lot of Karen, I think, in uh, in Fort Wayne, that these these people would, 50 years ago, have just walked into the deep hills and tried to survive in the hills. Or And now, of course, across the border in Thailand, where there are lots of uh, refugee uh, camps, and from those camps, they often came to the States. I think that's probably the pattern uh, that you're talking about in terms of the Indiana Burmese. And so what's happened is that the flight, now with airplanes and ships and so on, the flight has taken an international aspect and uh, kind of Europe is suffering from uh, being the hills, if you like, the the hills with promise and abundance and so on that beckon uh, people who are running away from states, uh, from state space. Again, if you just joined us, our, our guest for this hour is Professor James C. Scott. He's in Bloomington uh, as part of the Patent Lecture Series, uh, speaking on uh, domestication of fire, plants, animals, and us, and also speaking about uh, state hegemony and, and anarchy. I'm Will Murphy. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Profiles. I'm Will Murphy, and our guest for this hour, we're very fortunate to have James C. Scott, um, Yale professor who is um, speaking as part of the lecture series here, the patent lecture series at Indiana University. Uh, Let's turn a little bit to one of the topics that uh, you're mentioning during your visit here, and that's the whole question of anarchy. We've talked about states. We've talked about refugees. But anarchy is something that you discuss as well, makes many people nervous. And it's intriguing to me as you talk about different systems, whether they're clan or tribal systems, whatever they might be, what's the case to be made for anarchy? Well, the first thing, I suppose, is to revive the term in its original meaning. That is to say, I think for most people, anarchy means disorder and chaos. Uh, or it means people throwing bombs, uh, and so uh, anarchy, sort of like socialism because of the Eastern Bloc, it got a bad name and got um, detached, actually, from its uh, original meaning and origin. And so anarchism refers to forms of cooperation uh, and coordination without hierarchy, right? And so there are all kinds of small groups and tribes and towns and villages and so on who live an anarchic life in that sense uh, without any formal hierarchy and without 
inherited forms of uh, inequality and authoritarian rule. So anarchy is practiced in all kinds of everyday situations, even though people don't use the, the same word. I think my own attraction to anarchism as a system of thought came about because having come to political maturity in the Vietnam War, I had this romance, as many did in my generation in the 60s, of wars of national liberation and creating a new socialist state. You know, I was in love with Kwame Nkrumah, with Seiko Ture, with Mao Zedong, and uh, it took me a while to realize, I'm embarrassed to say that, but it took me a while to realize uh, that these revolutions ended up producing actually more oppressive states than the states that they replaced. Uh, and so my motto became when the revolution becomes the state, it becomes my enemy. And <laughs> I then went back and tried to understand how this happened in the Russian Revolution and how it happened in the French Revolution uh, and so on. So I became a critic of revolutions that look for the capture of the state itself uh, and top-down domination. And so Seeing Like a State is one of my books is an effort to show how top-down social engineering doesn't, uh, doesn't work. And for that reason, I found that the emphasis on autonomy and freedom, which is, in a sense, the animating spirit behind people who ran to the hills in Southeast Asia, has to be understood in a framework that could be called an anarchist framework. And so I found myself saying things about revolutions and resistance to the state and catching myself and saying, my God, Scott, that sounds like what an anarchist would say. And it happened enough so that I thought, well, uh, I better pay attention to this. Maybe I should teach a course on anarchism and read all the classics and see what I can derive from it. And the book that I wrote finally is called Two Cheers for Anarchism. You'll notice not three cheers, but two cheers. That's because I don't imagine that the state is going to disappear. But it embodies what I call an anarchist squint and the way in which I think an anarchist view of existing institutions helps us understand them from a different angle uh, and a different critique that is often valuable. I'll give you a very small and seemingly trivial example, but I think it's diagnostic. In Holland, there was a traffic engineer who was responsible for a section of the country, and in particular, an intersection through which 22,000 vehicles passed every day, an industrial suburb of Amsterdam. And something happened to the main traffic light, an electrical failure, and it took four days for the electrical failure to be fixed, during which time there was no light. And this man, being of an empirical turn of mind, noticed that during these four days, the traffic passed more quickly and efficiently through the intersection, and the number of accidents was something like uh, reduced by 70%. And so he thought to himself, why am I replacing the traffic light when traffic moves more quickly and more safely without a traffic light? And he said to himself, I'm not against traffic lights, but I want to find one that works. And so he judiciously remove traffic lights in other parts of his journey. This has become an international movement called red light removal, in which you can imagine the, the point being red lights do your thinking for you. They tell you when to stop and go. People try to beat the lights. It's what inter makes an intersection often uh, dangerous as well. 
And if there is no traffic light, everyone is slightly wary that they have to navigate and pay attention to what other cars are doing. It makes them more competent, alert uh, drivers. There may be some fender benders, but there's unlikely to be a large uh, accident that's fatal. So the red light, in a sense, takes away your powers of judgment and replaces it with a red light that tells you what to do. And we've all had the experience of stopping at a red light, realizing there's not any traffic coming in either direction uh, and waiting two or three minutes, or depending on our turn of mind, actually going (laughs) across the intersection. And it seems to me that it's the anarchist point that there are all lots of aspects of our life where our independent judgment, which might be superior to this mechanical uh, substitution for our judgment, might be a preferable situation. And I I use it because it's an illustration that everyone can uh, identify with. And I I worked on an East German farm uh, in 1991, just as a way of learning German before a year in Germany. And I would go, it was a tiny little village, but I would go once a week to the major town, Neubrandenburg in East Germany. And I was anxious about missing the train going back to the village. It was such a small village that you had to tell the conductor that you wanted to get down at the village, and they stopped in the fields, and you walked to the village. In any case, once a week for six weeks, I would go back to the train station during my day in Neubrandenburg. And because of the way in which the lights were set, I think, for daytime traffic, which may have made sense for daytime traffic, they were not changed at night. And so I remember again and again and again when I was there waiting for five or six minutes at a light, And it was the Mecklenburg Plain, so it's completely flat. You can see five miles in every direction, no traffic. And there are 60 or 70 Germans waiting for the light to change and not uh, budging. And uh, I thought this this was extraordinary in terms of uh, not using your rational mind. And uh, so I invented what I call Scott's Law of Anarchist Calisthenics, which is that one time in your life, you're going to be called on to break a big law. Think of, let's say, uh, the civil rights movements and so on in the South. And you have to be ready. And the way you are ready when this great moment comes is uh, to stay in shape and do your exercises and to break a small law every few days like jaywalking (laughs) or something like that in order to stay in shape. We have some very fit students on this campus. (laughs) (laughs) They're ready for the revolution. Well, this is a model for easy traffic flow. Can anarchy be used as a model for governance? Yes. That is to say, it's interesting to me that there are all kinds of forms of self-rule that take place. I mean, here's the problem. Anarchism only works, I think, as a form of coordination and cooperation without a hierarchy in situations where the balance of economic power, property, and so on is relatively equitable. Uh, If it's not equitable, then, of course, some people, in a sense, have all of the resources at their command and can more or less require other people to do their bidding. So anarchism is practiced uh, best and only, you could say, in communities where there's a roughly equal distribution of kind of property uh, and influence. And then it's not as if you don't get differences in power and prestige and status 
But what's important is that these are not inherited differences that over the long time create a permanent class of power holders and property holders uh, who hold the economic and political power of the country. So in a sense, my study of the hill peoples of Southeast Asia, these are peoples who lived in relatively, relatively egalitarian communities and they moved to the hills and to forms of agriculture that they could not be taxed in, in order to preserve what I would call an anarchistic form of governance. Now, there are forms of imperative coordination that are absolutely necessary to achieve large, complex projects. I mean, the anarchists are never going to send a space shot to the moon. Anarchists are never going to build a 747 or build a sort of massive bridge. So there, there are certain kinds of complex processes that can only be accomplished by imperative coordination. It is also true at the same time that this imperative coordination often results in forms of tragic mistakes because nobody paid any attention to the kind of knowledge embedded in ordinary people, right? So an anarchist, to sort of finish my thought, is that Adam Smith's example of the division of labor was a pin factory. And it's an example he uses in The Wealth of Nations. And Alexis de Tocqueville read uh, The Wealth of Nations and was actually admiring of uh, the division of labor and uh, what Adam Smith had to say. But he then said, well, but what is to be expected of a man who spent the last 20 years of his life putting heads on pins? And so an anarchist would ask of a factory, of uh, an enterprise, not just if it's an efficient producer of widgets of one kind or another, but an anarchist would ask, what kind of people is it producing? Um, that is to say, people with more skills, more initiative, more breadth, uh, more capacity for independent contributions, uh, people whose views of the technical process and insights are valued and taken into account and so on. So there are lots of ways of building cars. And some of them are far more respectful of the kind of initiative and talent and uh, and to the degree, I think, I have this large critique of great projects um, to transform the world that have failed. And they have failed because they fail to take into account local knowledge uh, of how things actually work uh, and that they're uh, therefore come a cropper in ways that are disastrous. A great example is Mao Zedong's uh, Great Leap Forward, a scheme from the very top imposed more or less uh, willy-nilly against a certain amount of resistance. And it, it killed 35 million people. So it belongs way up there with uh, the world's greatest tragedies. And it was uh, a well-intended scheme to put China ahead of uh, England and the U.S. in the production of steel and coal and so on. Uh, but it paid no attention to the practicalities that any Chinese villager could have told them would not work. You made a reference uh, in that discussion to um, paying attention to the kind of people you produce. And I have to say, I don't know if it's germane or not, but that made me think of something like Bhutan, where they talk about the gross happiness product, you right. know, where people look at how happy their populace is and not how much money they make. Right, right. Yes, in a sense, I guess 
if it were up to me, I guess it wouldn't be happiness that I would measure. Uh, but it would be some combination. I mean, happiness would be part of it, but the other part would be the expansion of human capacities. And I mean, because I couldn't imagine a situation where you're happy but subordinated uh, and well taken care of, right? And so it's that question of autonomy and freedom that's actually very important as well. So if, if I've thought this carefully through, actually, my partner's mother is 97 years old and in an assisted care facility. And it is clean, well-managed, the staff is attentive, it's a very attractive place and so on. And she hates it. And it's because all they've thought about is how can we take care of these people, right, as dependents. Medical care and also, you know, they provide them sort of food and they... Uh, and and what they never asked actually is how much control do these people have over their daily life and their experience, their food, their right. And so it it seems to me that that I would redesign this home on anarchist principles that would maximize the freedom and autonomy of this population in ways that I could specify. I'll give you one brief example that. So if there are five, five or six stories in this building, and she's on the fifth floor, so if she wants to go outside, she has to dress, a, go down the corridor, take an elevator, take another corridor, and go outside. And outside's not very attractive anyway. And in my old age home, there wouldn't be a second floor. Everyone would be on the first floor. They would be one sliding door that they could move themselves to being going outside, would not have to depend on anyone else. There would be, if you like, a one of those raised bed gardens that would allow them to cultivate the things that they wanted to, whether there were flowers or vegetables. There's someone who'd come in two or three times a week to help them cook the food that they wanted to eat. I would also never have more than, let's say, a dozen old people together because 400 people waiting to die is a recipe for a clinical depression. And so I would uh, break them up. I mean, people of the same kind in a big clump is a bad idea generally, whether they're teenagers uh, or uh, people in their 90s, for that matter. Uh, And so I would, in my fantasized old age home, the second floor would be rented out to university students who would help uh, the older residents from time to time have conversations with them. There'd be a daycare center nearby where older people who felt that they wanted to could help in small ways and make themselves useful and have contacted different kinds of people because that, that in a sense, that variety of experience that you have is part of being alive in any important way. Anyway, so that's an example of the kind of anarchist squint that would redesign an institution that may be good as a caretaking uh, operation, but is neglectful uh, just by not paying attention of uh, the autonomy, freedom, and choice that people have in their daily life. It seems to me this is almost a natural segue to uh, the conversation you have about, as you call them, these heaps of people that you put together, uh, heaps of grain, heaps of animals, they're all in the same pile in these uh, collections. Um, and it makes me think of the, the migration that's happened in this country and elsewhere over the past century, where 
families lived together, part of a community. When someone was ailing, they had their family nearby. They didn't go to an old age home. They didn't go to an institution. But now we have institutionalized farming. We have institutionalized everything, certainly institutionalized healthcare. There's been a, a migration of sorts, and it seems exactly in the opposite direction of what you would like to see. That's an important insight, and I think I think it's true that 50 or 60 years ago, most people grew old uh, in a community that they had grown up in uh, with relatives nearby and so on. There's still parts of... I live in Connecticut, and there's still parts of kind of Connecticut uh, in rural Connecticut where I live where it's very common for the children of a family to sort of live within 10 miles uh, and so on. Uh, it's not common in other places. But you can say that one of the prices we pay for our vast mobility, you know, my children are in Spokane and Denver and Washington, D.C., and very happy in the things that they do that happen to be available there and not in my hometown. Uh, so we pay a kind of price uh, for that by not having the close human network that doesn't need an institution to take care of people, uh, that sort of works simply by the kind of obligations of neighborhood and kinship and so on. Uh, and that's why we have old age homes, I suppose. And the question is... One would not, I don't think, want to sort of undo the social mobility that we have achieved and the opportunities that it creates uh, in order to get rid of old age homes. But we could certainly do a better job. And the other part, of course, old age homes is that since I'm on the edge of this myself, is the desire of elderly people not to be a burden to their children and not to be dependent uh, on them and wanting to have as much independence and autonomy. And that, of course, makes my anarchist point, uh, <laughs> that uh, our desire to both stay out, to, to not be sort of dependent, is, a, I think, a kind of admirable desire to remain as independent and autonomous as, uh, as, as possible. And indeed, it seems like um, the culture that we live in is against the model that you propose, that is to say people surrender their autonomy so that the state in particular will take care of their medical needs, uh, their their uh, health needs, their retirement, a number of other things uh, that have been institutionalized and the state is there to take care of them in some sense and they surrender uh, certain quality of life questions in order to achieve that. I think that's true. The protection racket, as you right. said. <laughs> Again, a reminder to our listeners, we're visiting this hour, very fortunately so, with Professor James C. Scott. He's in Bloomington as part of the Patent Lecture Series. Uh, I want to turn now to domestication, uh, the whole question of fire, of uh, grains and animals. Um, and we were talking before the program. Uh, as I read your research and hear your presentations, I get the sense that you're almost like Scrooge. You're like... We have yeah, everyone else thinks of fire as a great thing, and they think of the domestication of grains as a great thing, and the domestication of animals as a great thing. And you seem to suggest that domestication of fire was an environmental catastrophe, that uh, uh, proximity to animals in particular, and perhaps grains as well, uh, was very bad for our health. Perhaps you can elaborate, uh, and perhaps I've misinterpreted, but. What's your concern about this domestication process? Right. You, ha you haven't misinterpreted it. I do not want to say, however, that f 
fire and domestic animals and domesticated grains are a bad thing. Uh, it seems to me that they have been seen as an undiluted good thing that is responsible for civilization, progress, and what we think Homo sapiens have achieved. It will not surprise you to know that one of the reasons why I am interested in the earliest states is because in this last 3% of the career of Homo sapiens on Earth, we invented a whole series of institutions and practices that seem to have gotten us into a, a cul-de-sac environmentally, right? Uh, I don't know how apocalyptic you are about uh, our situation, but I become increasingly apocalyptic about the... Uh, and it seems to me there's this term called the Anthropocene, uh, which is a description of how mankind has changed its natural environment. And I think that the early states are the beginning of a kind of Oh, I would call it a thin Anthropocene of the clearing of fields, the clearing of watersheds uh, for firewood and so on, once people lived in large concentrations. So what I want to say is not that these are all terrible things that happened, but that it was a kind of Faustian bargain that in return for the control of fire and the shaping of landscape by that fire, uh, of domesticated animals and domesticated plants. There were a lot of benefits that we got uh, in terms of the concentration of population and the steady food supply and so on. It was at the beginning, uh, because the numbers of Homo sapiens were so tiny, I mean, we're, we're talking about... Um, the time of Jesus Christ, uh, we're talking about a population of, you know, maybe 25 million people worldwide, right? So it's the effects of our dent on the environment by our practices only come to be felt in any serious way. That's the usual idea of the Anthropocene by the Industrial Revolution uh, when our numbers are enormous and the use of fossil fuels becomes uh, also enormous. But I think we can see the template for a certain relationship to the environment uh, that is established quite early and that becomes uh, massively dangerous uh, and deleterious for our continuation on the planet later on. So what I want to do is I'm also, I was also interested in the earliest states and their practices. And I was struck both with how late the states were and with how fragile they were. So uh, they're always cracking up and dissipating, and people don't kind of know why it is because there are no written records early on. But I expect that a lot of it is, has to do with these zoonotic diseases that move between our domesticates and ourselves and the crop diseases that are common when you have a lot of the same cultivar uh, in a crowded space and people as well. And so... I think that the epidemiological side of early civilizations, we can see this, by the way, much later when Europeans come to the New World and 85% of the population dies because of diseases for which they have no acquired immunity. And so I think the epidemiological consequences of these early domestications and the sedentization or sedentary communities and early states has been overlooked. I'm not an archaeologist. I can't um, rewrite that history, but I can point to uh, what I think are possible causes that are 
overlooked and not inspected carefully. In uh, one of the materials I read uh, in announcing your remarks here in Bloomington, the line reads, if we want to know where we're headed as a species, it helps to know how we got here in the first place. Can we ask, where do you think we're headed? You mentioned that you're very apocalyptic these days. The reason why I'm a little hesitant in answering your question directly is because I long ago left uh, the profession of prognostication that political scientists are uh, want to sort of use, and I think we have a pretty bad record in uh, predictions. But I've read enough. I mean, I'm a kind of complete amateur at that level in terms of global warming and uh, issues of, of climate change. But I'm impressed by work by people like Elizabeth Colbert and the Sixth Extinction and so on, and at least find it impossible not to entertain the possibility that we've set in motion a series of processes and changes in uh, acidity and temperature uh, that may, just may, be irreversible right? in ways that, at the very least, will leave a much more impoverished world for our children and grandchildren and might actually be more catastrophic than that. So um, my, my way of thinking of this is that we have become willy-nilly uh, the incompetent zookeepers of the whole world. That is to say, we now control, given the, the what's left, given the extinctions that have already occurred, we control the life world of every other species on the world by uh, in the on the earth by our activities, and so we are incompetent zookeepers, right? Uh, who stumbled into a job that we don't have the kind of knowledge and skill to acquit ourselves of, but there we are, and it, these anthropogenic, as they're called, changes that we have set in motion. Are, we, we're the most successful invasive species the world has ever seen. There used to be just, as I said, 10 million, 25 million of us, and now we're on to 8 billion. Uh, and so we are consequential in a potentially uh, catastrophic way. Well, let's try and end on an up note, even for an anarchist. It's kind of, let's end on an up note here. We started off talking about uh, Burma, your start. Uh, in that neck of the woods some 50 years ago, 50-plus years ago, uh, and the totalitarian regime that took over and how you weren't able to return until 2009. Somehow the rebellion against that regime maintained itself, and now you have a very different political climate there. Perhaps you could speak about the resilience of rebellion in that neck of the world and if you have any hope either there or elsewhere, for the movements you see. One of the things that impresses me about Burma is the way in which, despite now more than a half century of military rule and repression, authoritarianism, and huge numbers of political prisoners, many of whom have died in prison, that Burmese culture is alive and well. So I am struck with the, the almost inverse relationship between political freedom and cultural productivity. If you look at what's happened in the last 20 or 30 years of Burmese poetry and fiction uh, and music and so on, 
it's quite extraordinary. And maybe this is, if you like, these were the only available forms of cultural expression in a repressive regime. But it's interesting that Burmese culture has remained alive and well and also full of uh, pranks and uh, and a sense of humor and an effort to, in a sense, goad the regime without giving them an excuse for outright repression and uh, imprisonment. The most amusing example recently is a poet. And there are lots and lots of Burmese poets who post things all the time. Facebook is a huge thing coordinating literary life in Burma, which surprised me. And one of the poets, fairly well-known poet, wrote a short poem saying, in the poem it says that he had had the name of the senior military general called Thane Sane tattooed on his penis and that his wife now refused to sleep with him because she was so disgusted by a penis that had Thane Sane uh, tattooed on it. He was then subsequently arrested. And you can imagine the Burmese population was laughing all day long uh, for weeks on end about this silly thing. If the, if the regime had been smart, they would have just completely ignored this altogether. And now there will be a court case in, in which it will be relevant, I suppose, for the prosecution to establish whether or not Thane Sane is actually tattooed on uh, his penis. But it gives, you, it gives you some sense for the high spirits and cultural creativity of the Burmese literati, which, by the way, is completely outside the universities. The universities are dead institutions. It's where culture goes to die. And if you want to meet intellectuals in Burma, you go to the tea shops that are the uh, equivalent of cafe society in 19th century France or, or England, and that's where everybody hangs out. We'll have to leave it there, Professor. Thank you so much. I've been speaking today with Professor James C. Scott, Sterling Professor of Political Science at Yale University. I'm Will Murphy. Thank you for being with us. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer, the studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.